0: This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's
1: on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.
2: Coming up on Money Beat, for everything you know and hear about the Federal Reserve, it really remains a very opaque institution. We're going to take the lid off of it. We have Danielle DiMartino Booth, an insider who worked for a decade at the Fed and the Dallas Fed. She is the author of the new book, Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America.
0: This is Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Steven Grosser.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the studio in New York City. Paul and Stephen here coming to you on The Money Beat Show, as we so often do, and a topic that we so often talk about, and one of probably the, the more misunderstood topics for as much attention as it gets, talking about the Federal Reserve, of course. I mean, it is something that just... Especially since the financial crisis. I mean, it has dominated conversation in the markets. What is the Fed going to do? When are they going to do it? What are they going to say? I mean, all this tea leaf reading, you know, every single utterance, every single gesture, everything about the Fed gets dissected, sliced and diced. But do you really understand the Federal Reserve?
1: And I was going to say, even with your big wind
2: up there, for, you know, talking about the importance of the Fed, you might have even underplayed it. I may have even underplayed it. Uh, but by the time this podcast is over, I think you will have a much better sense of what the Federal Reserve does, because sitting to my right right now as I speak, Danielle DiMartino Booth, you may know her, pretty often seen on on CNBC and other news stations, pretty widely quoted, uh, worked at the Fed, the Dallas Fed, with uh, Richard Fisher. I almost said Stanley. Two Fishers. Two Fishers. With with Richard Fisher from uh, 2005-2015, Previously, before that, you were on the street, so you had well, worked on Wall Street. And a journalist. And a journalist. No, that, like, that, okay.
0: Those were my non-compete yeah. years when I left Wall <laughs> Street, yes.
1: <laughs> t- I mean, actually, give it like a—because I think that it, well, your before, background before is— Before
2: of, we—, before okay. we So anyhow, uh, history on me. the street, history as journalist, history with inside the Fed for a decade, and now is the author of a book called Fed Up, which is coming out uh, on—it'll be released on Valentine's Day, actually— so that's very nice. Did you plan that I, have I, a Valentine's I, Day? Is, yes, this, my, is this your Valentine to the Fed? My
0: aim was to send Janet Yellen a forget-me-not. Is that <laughs> you, you You let me know <laughs> if it works. Have okay. we
1: actually given her name? He did. Janet, did he? Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. Daniel D. Martino.
2: Danielle Martino Booth is the author. The book is Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America Danielle, welcome to the podcast. So happy to be here today. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Good. All right. I'm sorry, Gross. You wanted to? No, I I think your
1: your background sort of plays into your view of the you know the the view you you had of the Fed and your time there.
0: If I didn't have this really odd background, right, Wall Street journalism monetary policy, central banker, I don't think I would have been able to connect the dots and write the book the way it's written for the average working American person, because it is genuinely written in layman's terms. I mean, I spell it out so that anybody can understand exactly what happens inside this mysterious institution. There's nothing mysterious about it at all.
2: Well, let's, I mean, not, you know, before we get to the main criticism, I'm kind of interested in in, in trying to understand uh, what your impressions of the Fed were like when you got there? What it was like as you were working there? And at what point did you start to think to yourself? Uh, at what po- point did all the thoughts that kind of ended up being this book start to, to right. percolate right. in your sure. mind?
0: Um, you know, when I left Wall Street, it was when the very first credit default obli- um, credit debt obligation CDOs mm-hmm. all these things were being hatched. When I was leaving. Um, so we weren't quite in that frenzy era yet, but I under- kind of understood what they were. Uh, and then I was obviously in journalism for a while, but I I, I was one of the first people to, to say, you know what, there's something wrong with this subprime crisis. And I wrote a lot of, you know, not-so-polite things about Alan Greenspan potentially leading the economy off a cliff. Uh, but nevertheless, to answer your question, when the Fed came calling – I considered it to be a, a tremendous honor to go and work at the Fed. I was irreverent. I was extremely proud uh, to go and serve my country. I don't, I don't, there's no hyperbole there. And you know, I, I arrived with great hopes that one person could make a huge difference. I knew that, that Richard Fisher and I had similar backgrounds. We were both kind of MBAs in finance. We'd started out on Wall Street. We looked at the economy and monetary policy through the prism of the markets which I think is a much different perspective than you get typically inside of academic type mm-hmm. of uh central banking thinking and for a while it was okay and uh it, it was so quiet though compared to what a trading floor uh was like so it was it was definitely a shift in culture for me um and then the crisis hit as i thought it would and then nothing and it well, was what the do you mean nothing? it was the uh you know, they say that every crisis is a great opportunity to bring about change. Mm-hmm. And so that was really why I went in in the first place. I went in knowing that the world was going to blow up and that systemic risk was brewing. And we didn't exactly know that it was with a bunch of German banks. I mean, we didn't know where the systemic risk lied. Not until Lehman went, did really the daisy chain um, unravel, but. I was still looking forward to the aftermath Mm -hmm. and to this organization that I had been critical of doing some introspection and saying, gee, we missed this. Why did we miss it? Let's go back and reexamine our models and the way we look at the world and change things. Mm -hmm. And even though there was a recognition that, hey, you know what, this inflation metric didn't exactly capture runaway asset prices and what was happening in residential real estate, et cetera. So we know we don't have the right inflation metrics. So what should we do about it? Nothing. And that was when the anger started to build.
1: What, what, what did they miss? I mean, obviously, you know, in retrospect, they obviously missed it. But, I mean, you had Greenspan, you know, famously in the 2006 period saying that, you know, it's re- like housing bubbles are regional. They can't, we can't have a nation, national one. So what did the Fed miss? Or why did they miss it?
0: I, I, think that, that, I think that there were several factors at hand. Um, one of them is that we've got too many regulators in this country. So uh, Ed Gramlich famously dissented in 2002. Uh, he called the housing crisis uh, and he, he called attention to the subprime situation well before most people. And he was on the board of governors at the time. He brought this to Greenspan's attention and Greenspan's basic answer was we only regulate 25 percent of mortgage lending. The rest of it's really not our problem. To which Granlick sort said. Of
2: non, the non bank stuff, right? Right. Yeah. But,
0: and, and, and bear in mind, who was running the San Francisco Fed while all this was happening in her backyard? Yeah. I mean, the new centuries of the world, the countrywides of the world, the IndyMax, mm-hmm. all of this was happening in the 12th district. And if you look back at the transcripts from 05 and 06, she was saying exactly the same thing that Bernanke at the time and Greenspan were saying. There's nothing to see here, folks. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. This is going to be contained.
1: Was it the way that they, they, they just didn't realize not only, you know, that lending standards are gone, uh, you know, that were gone so low, but also the fact that were, everything was so sort of tied together through CDOs, CDSs. Right. Did they just miss that completely?
0: You know, if you, um, if you were to watch Janet Yellen testify in front of Congress, which she will actually do on Valentine's Day, the day the book yeah. comes out um, – if if you if you force her to get into the nitty-gritty of bank supervision and regulation there's a visible boredom on her face no. it's just it's it's not in her wheelhouse and it's not she's not interested in it and i think that one of the things that really needs to change at the fed is that you need to have people on the inside who can read a bank balance sheet who can read what's off the bank balance sheet right. connect the dots i mean the shadow banking system when the crisis erupted, it was larger than the conventional banking system, right? You had $17 trillion versus $12 trillion in the conventional banking system. And there was a complete and utter mystery, if you will, within the Fed about what was going on on the larger side of the banking
2: system. Hmm. Let's, uh, let's take a break. We have a lot more coming up with Danielle DiMartino Booth. The book is Fed Up.
1: This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income and portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible.
2: Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington. Check us out at wsj.com podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app.
0: WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Steven Grosser.
2: Don't don't leave, Daniel. We okay, need you for the next segment. <laughs> Welcome back they, they, to they, Money they, Beat. They've heard you and I debate the Fed. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, this this is why you know you p- people shouldn't leave either because this is good. You're tired of hearing me talk about the Fed. I don't know anything. Oh come on, gentlemen, Danielle your knows thoughts, your thoughts. <clears throat> uh, Listen, welcome back to the podcast. For more great podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at wsj podcasts, and you can subscribe. We're just about everywhere. We're on iHeartRadio, Amazon Echo, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, your Google Play Music app. We are talking today with Danielle DiMartino Booth, author of the new book, Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And, and, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, Danielle, is you look at the Fed over a really long term, and one real change I see is, before my time, probably before your time too, you know, 60s, 70s, the 50s, the Fed was this really arcane institution. I mean, it still mattered to the street, but there. are Public pronouncements were few. They didn't tell people what they were doing on interest rates. I mean, the market had to just guess from where interest rates went, what the Fed was going to do. That changed over decades. And then especially in the the 80s and 90s with Greenspan. It started
0: with Greenspan. Who
2: became really like a celebrity. I mean, he wasn't just a a central banker. He was a celebrity. The maestro. The maestro. He had a nickname. Oh, yeah. You know. But it's it's more than just like him becoming a celebrity.
1: It feels like, you know this country, financial institution, everyone became to trust that the Fed could keep this sort of like, you know, get rid of all sort of massive recessions or depressions right. and yeah, keep the no.
2: economy going. Well, you've got this cult of personality around the Fed. Right. And you it, do. You and absolutely that trust...
0: do. But in the process, we've lost the cyclicality in the business cycle, which is a really bad thing mm-hmm. long term because still waters run deep. And when you consider that it's been 30 years now, really, since, I mean, think about it, October the 20th, 1987, the day after the crash, Greenspan comes out and says, I've got your back market. Right. We've got got the financial system and the banking system taken care of. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the day that the supposed Greenspan put was born. Yeah. And investors, the way investors behaved started to change from that day. You know, things kind of got worse after 94 and then long-term capital management in 98. But every iteration that the Fed stepped in to the markets and said, we're going to put a floor into those losses, it, it started to infect the way we approach investing and kind of change our expectations. that it's it, We don't need to save. We can let the markets... Do that for right. us. right
2: did it also start to change the mindset within the Fed itself
0: oh absolutely yeah that, look and that's
2: what I wanted to, that's what I wanted to go with you and I wanted to get your take it on did, that. Um, yeah.
0: you know I mean that that was the most frustrating aspect uh, from all those years inside the Fed and it became much more frustrating as a factor of time is that there, there was this assumption there was this fear of the markets that they couldn't let them correct mm-hmm. I mean we never we've Never gotten to ten percent, people. Literally, um, we've never gotten to, back to a single digit price to earnings ratio. Not even in, you know, in, dur- during the great crisis years. Yeah. The, the lowest we got was still a double digit price to earnings ratio, and it's it's the it's the fear that has actually come out and prevented what we call creative destruction. So we have we have zombie corporations in this country that exist simply because the Fed has not. Been courageous enough to let nature take its course and to let a lot of the weaker companies and or even banks yeah. go out of business.
2: I didn't think we were going to get there this soon, but now that we're there, uh, the Fed has what a four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet that they have that they have built up. Yeah, they had about it was under it was about nine hundred billion before the crisis. Mm-hmm. Now it's four and a half trillion. Um, they seem completely unwilling to let that unwind.
0: Yeah, if you want this party to end, let the balance sheet shrink.
2: Yeah. yeah, truly,
0: because the market's been operating under the assumption that that would not happen ever since Bill Dudley of the New York Fed came out and kind of changed the rules of the exit game and said, "You know what? On second thought, we can start to raise interest rates before we shrink the balance sheet." And the market went, "Huh?" But from that minute on, there was this there was this implication then that the balance sheet might stay big forever. Yeah. So if the Fed was to be raising rates and shrinking the balance sheet at the same time, you would effectively have a double tightening um
1: and the balance sheet also has a, a significant – like shrinking that has a significant impact on long-term rates, which have more of an impact on your mortgage. Sure, consider, the, like consider and, their mortgage-backed holdings. Right, and that your housing market, which is –
2: And, and at, at some point, does it become – and it's funny because, you know, sadly in California, you have this issue right now where, where there's a, that dam in Oroville is just burst. Right, right, right. I mean, but that's kind of the perfect metaphor for that balance sheet. That is a massive body of water that is being held back – by an you know an, an artificial right. earthworks,
0: mm-hmm.
2: what do they do with it?
0: You know, I mean these these are the burning questions. You know, it's this is, you know that there the Fed is really mired in a dilemma right now. You've got retirees, you've got pensions that are in, in tailspins. You have a, a certain segment of the financial system that is desperate to have interest rates rise, mm-hmm. desperate for their functionality, for their ability to retire. Um, but by the same token, this era of unprecedented zero interest rates has also allowed for the buildup of debt. I mean, you know, the, the running joke, the gallows humor was with the S&P 500 market capitalization hit $20 trillion or the debt of the United States, which is coming first. Um, obviously, the S&P hit twenty trillion first, but not the, by much. The debt's not far behind yeah, it. Yeah, not by much. And the question is, because the U.S. Treasury has, has decided to keep... To keep the, the, the duration, if you will, the maturity profile yeah. uh, so short, what's going to happen to the US government? What's going to happen to corporate America? And what's going to happen to so many American households who rely on variable rate debt? What will happen if we have rising interest rates? Again, it's a dilemma. Savers need interest rates to go up, and borrowers need interest rates to stay down. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when you stay too low for too long. This is a situation the Fed has created and put upon itself. That is my main criticism. And this
1: this didn't really – I mean, the too low for too long – it really, actually, dates back before the financial crisis. I mean, this started in you know Greenspan's policy. This is Greenspan's yeah. measured yeah.
0: pace, blah yeah. blah blah, and that that's why the housing crisis blew up, in, in you know, right in the background because everything was very measured.
1: And you, let's talk about like sort of the pension funds. I mean, pension funds in your retirement fund. I mean, a lot of the pension funds are predicated on this notion, this historical notion of seven percent return on you know sort of fixed income. I mean, we haven't seen rates near there in, you know, well over a decade at this point, if yeah. I'm not wrong.
0: No, you know, I was listening to the CIO of Sturge, you know, one of the largest pensions on planet Earth, you know, talk a few days ago, and they're they're moving towards lowering their rate of return assumption to 7%. Right. Um,
2: lowering it to 7.
0: Lowering it to 7. Yeah. Gradually. But bearing in mind, every time you take those return assumptions down, that means that a state or a municipality or a school district or whatever has to write a bigger check. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of cash. Right. Right Baby boomers are not retiring in theory they 're retiring in practice, but you know, I, I was listening to him and the rumblings from Fed officials that are you know that are starting to talk about um, shrinking the balance sheet and normalizing interest rates it 's a matter of watch what you ask for because what if what if rates of return on fixed income get back up there yeah. well then you're you 're in more than a recession at that <laughs> point you 're in the soup with all the debt you 've got out there, if I mean, interest rates really were to rise. To that extent, you would take it out on the other side and all their equity holdings and private equity, this and that, and real estate. It's – it really – I, I don't use the word dilemma lightly.
1: And it's also – I mean it's, it's a big issue for the U.S. government. Oh, gosh. So, I mean and, – and, and I think the Trump administration is just sort of realizing this. I mean there was a nice quote where <laughs> Gary Cohn was sort of making this point to Donald Trump that like the fiscal stimulus he talked, this big infrastructure spending – doesn't come, you know, is going to be a huge... It's <laughs> not free. It's not free. And, and by well, the way, that's why we need private, you know, investment right, in that, right. which complicates it. And Donald Trump like looked, like the description was, he looked at the, he, you know, his advisors on his campaign. It's was like, why didn't you tell me this earlier? <laughs> I mean, and that's... And like, by the um, way,
0: foreigners are, are, you know, have been net sellers of our treasuries yeah. at the same time, sir. So if they keep backing up, look, there are many different moving pieces and the incoming administration, uh, you know, I mean... The way they want to pay for these tax cuts is so controversial and so convoluted, especially to the average congressperson, Um, you know, the border tax adjustment that it it remains to be seen if Trump is not going to be forced to keep accommodative people on the Federal Reserve Board. For as as much as we might like to think that we're going to have voices of dissent because he's got such an opportunity, five or six replacements between now and next summer. Um, he has such an opportunity to reshape the Fed. The question is, will he have the wherewithal? Will he have the the budgetary yeah. ability?
1: Yeah. One of the one of the questions I mean we've discussed this many times is you know uh, the Fed does you know does, has gotten a lot of criticism and deservedly so for its policies. Um, but what about the you know the lawmakers, the legislators that have you know at the same time pursued you know, uh, austerity, things like that. I mean, what, did they, did they put undue pressure on the Fed as the only one to act to sort of stave off this? Or were they right to, you know, follow an austerity plan?
0: Oh, you know, I think, I think Congress initially uh, put too much on Bernanke. It's not often that I come writing into his defense. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think that initially they put too much on him. If you excuse me, if you look at the Petri dish of North Carolina, the state of North Carolina, that that pulled back on those 99 weeks of unemployment insurance, and you actually saw kind of the counterfactual happen. You saw that the labor market there in that state improved. Um, I look at it a little bit differently than what you're suggesting as Mm an austerity. I think that Uncle Sam having a 1.8% borrowing cost on average uh, over the last fiscal year has actually bought them too much um ability to tack debt on very quietly
1: right hmm.
0: because they can say gee the the deficit's been falling well that that's just that that's simple math of course, right. the deficit's been falling. How could it um, not be when you 've got interest rates at the zero bound
1: and it helps you not hit the debt ceiling as quickly of and course like it's that. all
0: it's all good optics, political blah blah blah, but there are other things I think that Congress could have done that that they initially put the onus on the Federal Reserve to do for them.
2: Well, let's, and I, I, this is all leading somewhere. This is all leading to your central criticism of the Fed. But, but before we get to that point, I want to ask you one other question because we're here now. Um, I mean, what do you think should have happened in 2008? I mean, you said you saw this crisis coming a long time ago. You knew there was going to be a problem. What do you think? And not just within the Fed. I mean, you know, what do you think should have happened in 2008 that didn't happen that started you down the road that ended up with this book being published?
0: You know, I think that there was a recognition uh, after systemic risk was ignited. Right. And and, and, look, I I go into it in the book. I think it could have been Lehman or Bear. I think it was just a matter of timing Mm -hmm. and the fact maybe that Hank Paulson really didn't like Dick Fooled. But there were a lot of different moving pieces that it it could have been Bear or Lehman. Yeah. But I think that once we were able to say, gee, there's systemic risk in these gigantic institutions, that there wasn't the ability to let the world melt. We couldn't do that. We couldn't set off a global depression. And the Fed had to ride to its own rescue, right? Because it created the housing bubble. It was on its watch. So it had to go clean up its own mess. But at that point, if you were to recognize that we've got these two big to fail institutions that have become way too complex to regulate, mm-hmm. then fine. Bring back some nice, elegant, Glass-Steagall type of solution right. and take the onus off the taxpayers of tomorrow. That was not done. Mm-hmm. And the Fed sat by and let it not happen.
1: We were actually – I mean, we're, what do you think of, I guess, <laughs> Dodd-Frank, which is being oh. undone – um, as we speak, I mean, one of the the central criticisms we talked about just on Friday mm-hmm. was essentially that it came out before the report of what actually caused the crisis mm-hmm. um, came out. What's your f- appeal, uh, feeling on how Dodd Frank did to address, you know, the the crisis and what what happened?
0: I think Dodd Frank's made things appreciably worse. I think that the biggest banks are even bigger and more concentrated. If you look at derivatives positions, they're even more frightening than they were in 06, 07, 08. Um, and to make matters worse, now you have, uh, you know, you, you've taken it away. You've taken the ability to provide liquidity to the $200 trillion plus bond market. You've taken that away from regulated institutions, banks, yeah. and put that into the shadows. I mean, you want to sell a bond when the high yield market seizes up? Call Steve Schwartzman. Yeah. Call Leon Black. Call, call your local private equity guy because that's what Dodd-Frank did. It moved more banking into the shadows even though you still have bigger banks than you had before.
1: How much is uh, that bond liquidity? Because <laughs> that was getting a lot of attention in the summer of 2015 and, you know, you had Larry Fink and, you know, the executives of the banks on either side debating this issue. How much of that is still, I guess, an issue today?
0: Well, we've seen an even larger rush into passive yeah. types of investing. Um, no, now you've got retirees who are like, oh, "This is great. The fee structure is low." I'm just
1: and people are like, we just had a story out today about how people are rushing into yes. uh, bond ETFs. Like yeah. the flows have been huge since the start of the year.
0: It doesn't work. I mean, if you're if you're the bond fund manager, you're going to take your Verizon. You're gonna you're going to take your great big liquid bonds when you've got redemptions, and you're going to sell them. Yeah. And the markets have never gotten to the point where they have to ask themselves the next question down the road, which is, "Oh God, now we're just sitting on the illiquid stuff. Now what?" And we've never gotten to that point in the markets. So, I mean, bond ETFs have never been stress tested, and Janet Yellen herself has worried about them because it's such a massive mismatch. Wow
2: well, let's Let's get to the let's get to the very heart of it. Essentially, <laughs> this is the subtitle of your book: "Why the Fed's Bad for America." Um, so let me ask a question. Why is the Fed bad for America?
0: There's no diversity of thought at the Fed. You're talking about over 1,000 Ph.D. economists. If you look at the original 1913 Federal Reserve Act, it mandates that the president choose from a diverse number of industries and geographies. That's in the verbiage of the original 1913 Act. Mm-hmm. And right now, the preponderance of people running the Fed have been trained in a similar way in academia never held a day job, never made a payroll, they make policy that they don't actually have to be on the receiving end of. I'm Italian. I like to say they don't have to eat their cooking. <laughs> I have to taste the sauce before I, I serve it to anybody. That's the rule. But the Fed, I mean, they, they're all going to have pensions for life,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, defined benefit programs, health care for life. They're not on the receiving end of their own policies And it completely distorts their way of saying, you know what, we know best. We know best. So what if your children are never going to know what compounding interest is? That miracle. So what if your mom is forced to buy junk bonds? That other miracle disaster waiting to happen. We need more people inside the Fed. I'm not necessarily saying business people, but we need more people inside the Fed who understand the implications of Mm -hmm. the policy that's made.
2: So, you mean not even because it's interesting, you know, people always assume that if it's not going to be academics at the Fed, it has to be bankers, but bankers could be their own problem. So, you're saying we should be going beyond academics and just Wall Street and looking even further. Well, I think
1: that's the other problem, though, is like we oftentimes think of bankers and we only think of Wall Street. Like we don't think of, you know, the big commercial banks and things like that or the the local banks that are lending to the small businesses in
2: their community. (laughs) So so you you think think? we should be going even further afield and finding people? We we
0: had a goat farmer, you know, from West Texas on our board. He was great.
2: Really? Yeah.
0: And we had the, you know, we had the chairman and CEO of Whataburger.
2: I don't even know what Whataburger is.
0: It's like McDonald's of the South. Okay. And it was great to hear him say, you know what? We've moved to the 99 cent menu. Things are getting tight. Mm-hmm. Households are getting squeezed. And you get that kind of information. You get that kind of real data that doesn't have to be seasonally adjusted. You start to bring in different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And I think that's critical. I think it's missing from the Fed.
2: Hmm. And how, does that, how do you how do you do? I mean, if you had those people on your board, I mean, obviously you, you and Fisher wanted that. You know, How do you get that thinking besides writing a book? <laughs> I guess do, that's the I, answer. Actually. Read the last chapter. I mean, yeah. look.
0: Power is too concentrated in Washington D.C. and in New York. Yeah, California is no. the largest economy. Texas is the second largest economy. These people should have per- permanent votes.
1: How much? How much do the regional feds have people on their boards? Like you know, the the goat farmer, um, or is that was that really you know sort of only the Dallas Fed or uh, Fisher and you having?
0: You know, I really couldn't speak to yeah. other district sure. boards, but I can tell you that that. The New York Fed board has had its own fair share of um, having too many foxes in the henhouse.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, we have to leave it here. And that's actually a great place to leave it. So, Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. really for appreciate much. it. Uh, the book is called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Fed, why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Uh, it was great catching up with you. Good to see you. Thanks. Likewise. Good thank luck you with it. All right, everyone, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.
0: WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.
2: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the
1: world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.